what I want to talk to you about this morning is cardiosclerosis. You've heard perhaps of sclerosis of the liver, uh, hardening by disease that renders a vital organ in your body non-pliable, removes its elasticity, and renders it eventually inoperative. It doesn't work anymore. Cardiosclerosis is the hardening of the human heart. It's a serious condition caused by induration uh, associated with inflammation and marked by a loss of elasticity in the heart. Uh, it, It can be caused by an increase in fibrous tissue in the heart itself or the unintended development of connective tissue around the heart, either one uh, creating a hardened mass or a formation in and around the heart. You understand how vital the human heart is to the human body, and so a, a hardening of the heart is a deadly, serious matter. What we want to talk about this morning is not your physical heart and its hardening, but the inner you. What the Bible calls your heart, that command and control center of who you are, what you think, how you feel, what you choose to do, the the, the brain uh, or the mind, your thought processes, your affections, what you love and what you don't like, and your will. This is what the Bible calls your heart. And we want to talk about the hardness of heart. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And we find in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, a warning against hardness of heart. And your pre-homework assignment was to read and meditate on this passage, to ponder the things that are here. Uh, If you didn't do the homework, but you came to church on Sunday morning, then you did the homework. Uh, my brother-in-law, uh, John Anderson, preached on this passage, and uh, he and I did not collude on this. Uh, he, in fact, called me and said, Smed, what should I preach on Sunday morning? I said, well, whatever you're uh, working on back at home. He said, great, I want to do Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. And I started scrambling. I said, oh, no, I don't want to tell the guest preacher not to do what he wants. But that's what I was going to do for Wellspring the same week. And um, so thankful for John because what he did in Hebrews 3 uh, was better than what I would have given. And it was so clear and so helpful. But it also frees me up to do more of a survey of hard-heartedness throughout the scriptures. And so um, if you didn't hear Sunday morning's message, you need to go back and hear that. It, It is the springboard and platform for the things we'll talk about together this morning. But in Hebrews chapter 3, we have these words. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after today, as long as it is still called today, so that no one of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And John brought out on Sunday the connections between unbelief and hardness of heart. And a falling away. These are serious warnings. Written to believers. John and I both have been working on the book of Hebrews. And and teaching Hebrews in our small groups. 
um, again, independently of each other and then exchanging notes. I, I remember thinking not very long ago that uh, Hebrews 6 was going to be a challenging section of, of that study because, you know, in Hebrews 6, there's that great warning passage that makes it sound like uh, people who love Christ fall away. And uh, what am I going to do with that passage? I better start buying good commentaries and uh, working ahead because Hebrews 6 is going to be hard. What I discovered is that very dire warning to believers about falling away is the entire book of Hebrews. It begins in chapter 1, comes up again in chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. In fact, the theme of the whole book of Hebrews is Jesus is better than everything you're tempted to go back to. And the original readers were tempted to go back to a form of Judaism which still stood in Israel. This was written before A.D. 70 in the destruction of the temple by Titus Vespasian when he he walked in and, and leveled the place. But before he did that, the temple still stood, the priests still went through their mechanisms, animals were still sacrificed. And this is all after Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived, died, was buried, rose again, and is our once-for-all sacrifice and our high priest. Genuine believers actually were to be following Christ, and the temple and the synagogues kicked out the apostles. They disfellowshipped Jews who had begun to follow Christ. And so for a Jew to go back to the temple worship in Judaism, after perhaps they'd been disfellowshipped from the synagogue, uh, they had broken family ties and relationships over their following this Messiah. Uh, Many had lost jobs or homes or belongings. The writer to Hebrews tells them, you haven't shed your blood yet. In other words, this was probably before the first martyrdom amongst the audience of Hebrews. But many had lost lots of other things. So it was costly to follow Christ. It would have been comfortable and convenient to go back to what was normal. I don't know if you've ever thought about your old life. I don't know if you've ever been attracted to your old life. Man, remember before I was a Christian and I still had friends. Or there wasn't this raging battle inside of me. There's something attractive about that. And the warnings from the book of Hebrews are, don't go back there. Because if you walk away from Christ, you walk away from everything. And we have kind of a, sometimes a sentimentality toward the good old days. Well, they weren't so good. And Jesus is better, infinitely better. That that is the message of the book of Hebrews. That is the message of the warning in chapter 3. And I want you to notice in verse 14, or verse 13, Uh, The warning is encourage one another day after day so that none of you will be hardened, hardened. And and there is the Greek word sclerosis, sclerosis. Uh, We get our English word sclerosis from the Greek word sclerosis. Isn't this great? You know Greek words now. You always have. You just didn't know it. Uh, This word shows up as a verb to harden um, and speaking metaphorically of the heart, of your spiritual condition, to harden a heart, to, to cause your inner man to be unyielding, non-pliable. It's used as an adjective in Romans 2.5, as in hardness of heart. And it's used as a noun, and we get the word sclerocardia, is the word that's used, an unyielding frame of mind or hardness of heart. And many of the passages we'll look at today in our survey of hard-heartedness 
Um, some of them use these words for hardness and hardness of heart. And some of them deal with the consequences of hardness of heart. And so um, the fundamental human problem is a hard heart. And the solution that God provides when you believe, and really the, the ground and cause of your belief, is the replacement of that hard heart with a new heart. You, you know the passages from Ezekiel that a stony heart is replaced with a heart of flesh. And in Jeremiah 31, it is a, a new heart that is given. And in Deuteronomy 10 and 30, it is circumcision of heart. In other words, God does something supernatural and miraculous on the inside of you to fundamentally change your inner person. Now, the completion of that work doesn't happen until heaven and so while we have a new heart, what we have is the addition of things we never possessed before we were in Christ with the residual things that we did possess before we were in Christ. And we now reside in this mixed condition. And the, the thing that happens in our inner person is what we might call a homardiological hangover, right? The, the sin hangover or the residual depravity now at war in you with the things God has brought as new realities in the heart. And those new covenant realities, the, the new covenant that God promised to Israel that hasn't yet been fulfilled, but we participate in, in the spiritual elements of it, um, are staggering. That you have capacities and abilities and desires and longings for things you never had outside of Christ. In fact, a, a great uh, self-examination tool are, are the realities of these spiritual new covenant realities. Am I in Christ? Well, I should see new things in me welling up in my attitudes, behaviors, actions, motives. And if those things aren't, aren't there, then I still am left in my fundamental problem. Whatever moral reforms might be on the outside, whatever religious cleaning up I might be doing on the outside, if I don't have a fundamental internal change wrought by God in the human heart, then I don't belong to Christ. The danger for the believer with these new realities from God mixed with these old realities from me, the danger for the believer is hardness of heart to bit by bit revert back to a stony-ish condition of heart. Uh, sclerocardia cardiosclerosis or a, a hard heart. What, what does that look like? Um, we see the symptoms of hard heartedness in a lack of love for God. My affections for God are waning. My pursuit of God is slowing up a step. It shows up in a, a failure to love others, which is really the fruit of God's love for us and our love for God. We see hardness of heart in unchecked sin. Anytime I'm letting sin go, I'm not staying on short accounts with God. I'm not taking full advantage of the Lord's table on Sunday mornings. I don't have people in my life asking me hard questions, helping me walk the way I should walk. I, I'm just getting comfortable with sin. Hardness of heart shows up in wayward emotions. Hard thoughts about God and his dealings. I, I don't like who God is and what he's doing in my life right now. Hardness of heart shows up in inordinate desires. Either a desire for a good thing that's out of proportion or a desire for a wrong thing altogether. 
hardness of heart shows up in things like anxiety and fear. And what I want to do this morning is talk through the dangers of hard-heartedness, the causes of hard-heartedness, and the remedies for hard-heartedness. Let's look first at the dangers of hard-heartedness. And we'll go through seven of these. Number one is a weakened conscience. A weakened conscience. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages this morning, so have your Bibles ready. Paul writes 1 Timothy to Timothy. Timothy is his protege, uh, a man pastoring the church at Ephesus, a man that Paul had discipled. And interestingly, in verse 18, Timothy was a man in accordance with the prophecies previously made. He was a man told to fight the good fight. I don't know about you, if, if somebody had uh, been given direct revelation from God, which was absolutely true and inviolable and would uh, not fail, and those prophecies concerned uh, a fruitful pastoral ministry or whatever those, the content of those prophecies were, I don't know about you, but I would, I would probably sit on my laurels and wait for those prophecies to just happen. And that's not what Paul says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, these prophecies were made concerning you, so fight the good fight. That's an interesting combination of a divine security and a human responsibility. And he says, keeping faith, verse 19, and keeping a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Hardness of heart produces a rejected conscience. A good conscience is one that is sensitive to sin, sensitive to God's holiness. The Bible says that we can reject a good conscience or men can sear their consciences as with a branding iron. And and I know this tendency in my own heart. Um, Once I sin in any given area, it becomes easier to sin again in that same area. You start to cut a track in the rug, you, you, you cut a rut in the mud and, and a, a, a track through the wilderness, you walk that same path. And you have to understand that habits are a gift from God. Have you ever thought about that? What, what a great capacity that God has given to the, to the way we think and behave. If, if I had to learn to shave my face again every day, I wouldn't get out of the house or I'd be a bloody mess. Um, if you had to learn to tie your shoes Every morning for the first time. But now you're able to tie your shoes and carry on a conversation and think about lunch and whatever else you're doing through the day. Um, There's a habit that's been formed that just happens and you just do it without thinking about it. What a great gift from God. The, The danger of habits is that when we create a track or a habit for sin, it becomes much easier to do it without being afraid of it, without giving it much thought at all, and just walking in that path again. It becomes very, very difficult to get out of those ruts. You've heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. Well, it doesn't. The right way to think about it is what? Practice makes permanent. Practice makes permanent. And so a weakened conscience 
is that reality that my sensitivities towards sin and toward the holiness of God get dulled by my sin. What does that produce? More sin, more searing of a conscience, which gives rise for opportunity for more sin. Man, how do I cut through the calluses around my heart and get back to a sensitivity towards sin? We'll talk about that. But it, it's not easy, uh, just like it's not easy to break a habit. And we need divine help. A second danger of hard-heartedness is weakened witness. A weakened witness. Turn to Titus chapter 2. There Paul is explaining to Titus. He says in verse 9, Urge servants, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Uh, here's a, a remarkable statement. The gospel of God is glorious intrinsically, all by itself. It's great. Um, but here Paul tells believers through Titus, a pastor on the island of Crete, to encourage Christians to adorn or dress up the gospel of God. Now, what does that mean? Um, he's talking about their behavior. What would the gospel look like to a watching world if a, if a slave in the, in the first century uh, Roman system of slavery or take, for instance, an employer-employee relationship? What would it look like if, if someone was pilfering, stealing, and professing Christ? What is it like when an employee comes to work late every single day and tells his unbelieving boss, oh yeah, but I was talking about Jesus to guys on the bus. You're stealing from me. I hired you to do this job. Come do this job and do it well. Paul is encouraging believers, adorn the doctrine of God, adorn the gospel of God with right behavior. Do you understand that a hardness of heart producing patterns of sin weakens our witness? Paul goes on in verse 12. Uh, Grace appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, notice this in verse 14, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This gets at the one of the reasons that Jesus died. Jesus died in our place, not just to secure our presence with him in heaven. That's great. That's ultimate. That's infinitely delightful and glorious, and it glorifies him. But he also died to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. That's not a heavenly reality. That's an earthly reality. And so to go against the very purposes for which Christ died in the life of a believer here on earth uh, does not adorn the gospel well. It does not say to a watching world, look how powerful Jesus is. Look how great the gospel is. It does the opposite. It tells a watching world that Jesus is just a name you tattooed on yourself and the gospel is powerless to actually do anything. A hard heart weakens our witness. Number three, a hard heart weakens the church. A hard heart weakens the church. And if you were here Saturday, you heard John's message on 
John Calvin in the Reformation era and his expository preaching and his training of men in the context of the church in Geneva and how that was the, the, the fuel, the springboard for thousands of churches throughout France. A remarkable church planting missions endeavor. And John was drawing the connection between a pure church and a strong gospel uh, outreach. In other words, the, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth from a pure church. And it wasn't until the church was able to, to address sin in the lives of believers and actually uh, differentiate between believers and unbelievers coming to the church uh, that the church had an effective witness. And we understand how that works on a, on a large scale. How, how in the world is uh, Amelia or, or the Cans or the Laymans uh, supposed to know what to plant in Papua New Guinea if they haven't been part of it here or seen it here? A healthy church multiplies and produces gospel preaching, healthy, mature churches um, outward from its own walls. I want you to see this in the, in the that was John's um, thoughts from Saturday. What I want you to see is that same principle operating in the context of the local church in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.16 says this, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, that was a, a long string of words that actually was not a complete sentence. It's the end of a long Pauline sentence in Ephesians chapter 4. And even the part that we did read was a, a jumble of words all thrown together. I want to simplify it for you. There's a subject a verb, and a direct object. And you're thinking, oh no, Smedley's talking about grammar again. I remember that retreat. <laughs> we did have a sentence diagramming retreat for women's ministry. Yeah, Sorry about that. I'm going to simplify verse 16 for you here. The subject of the sentence is the body, meaning the church, the whole body. There's a verb, which is causes, and then there's an object, Growth, the, the growth of the body or church growth. What is it that brings about the growth of the church? It is the church. The body causes the growth of the body. That's verse 16. And that comes in a context of what Paul is saying in all of Ephesians 4. And it begins farther up the chapter where Jesus is head of the church. And he's the one that gives the growth to the church in an, in an ultimate and an immediate sense. And he does it by employing and enlisting pastors, teachers, evangelists. People come to know Christ and then they're equipped for the work of ministry in the church. And then they grow up into the head who is Christ. Uh, they grow in discernment. Uh, they're, they're not tossed uh, by waves of the sea, believing this, then believing that. Uh, they, they also are um, attaining to the unity of the faith. In other words, they're growing in the knowledge of Christ till they all believe the same things. All of those things are contributing and then the mechanism by which the local church grows and matures into those things is the local church itself. The church causes the growth of the church, verse 16. But I want you to notice the mechanics of how this happens. Look at this. From the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. 
Two mechanisms are happening here to cause the growth of the body. The first is the joining of its members. And by joint here, Paul doesn't mean an elbow or a knee. He means the the connective parts of every kind of tissue in the body, whether it's ligaments uh, to bone. uh, There's a very close connection between uh, physiologically all the various parts that make up a human body. And in the church, which the physicality is a metaphor for us, we are individuals and yet we are interdependent, interconnected parts And we belong to one another. We are members of one another, Paul says. And it is at those points where we connect, where our lives rub up against each other, where we are interdependent and interconnected with each other that actually supplies the vital energy for growth of the whole church. And your thumb can't dismember itself from the rest of you and go on and have a nice life. Any more than you or I ought to feel like we can separate ourselves from the body and not cause harm to ourselves and to the body. It is at those joints, those joining places where we rub up against each other, that is actually what Paul calls the joint of supply for the energy and vitality for the growth of the church. That's the first part of the mechanism. The second part, in addition to us being together, is the proper working of each individual part. The proper working of each individual part. It is the the joining together that that is the joints of supply according to the proper working of each individual part. So if, if you are not functioning properly as an individual Christian, shepherding your own heart, you actually have a deleterious effect on the rest of the body around you. Think about it this way. If if I haven't been reading my Bible, If I haven't been refreshed in worship, in prayer, in uh, spending time with God, meditating on his word, being transformed by him, reading the gospel primer like you did this morning, Jamie, and just being amazed at what God has done for us in Christ in the gospel. If I have not been doing those things, and then I hang out with Scott Maxwell, what is he going to benefit from that joint of supply in me? You're fine. I know who you are. (laughs) Scott will not benefit from me working properly as an individual part. But we might talk about a lot of things, but but not the things that are going to cause growth for the whole body by our joining together, working properly together. If, however, uh, I've been reading my Bible and refreshing my heart on the things of the Lord and pursuing him with all my heart and running after him, Scott's going to be encouraged by a conversation with me. It's just going to come out. And Scott's encouragement about my proper working is going to be encouraging to me so that the the totality of encouragement is greater than its parts. The sum is greater than the parts. And, And this is how growth actually happens. More vitality and life and energy for church growth happens. It's not two plus two. It, it's two plus two makes seven and eight and nine. And then that spills out into the lives of others. That's what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 4.16. The corollary to that is this. If I'm not reading my Bible, I am robbing from the local church its vitality for growth. Do you understand? Your pursuit of the Lord is not just about you. 
The Holy Spirit has placed you into a body and your individual activities affect the rest of the body, positively or negatively. So what does hardness of heart do in an individual? It weakens the church. And it weakens the church's witness. And it weakens the platform from which missionaries go out to the ends of the earth and plant the church and preach the gospel and seek for those same things to happen. There's a fourth danger of hard-heartedness. It is a decreasing delight in Christ. I want you to look at John 14. John 14, 15, 16, 17 is, is that intimate conversation between Jesus and the disciples. It's the upper room discourse. This is the night he's being betrayed. At some point in this conversation, Judas leaves, and it's Jesus and the eleven. And in John 17, you have that remarkable prayer. Uh, we, we get to listen in on an inner Trinitarian conversation. Uh, th- these are just heart-rending moments. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the disciples and to hear Jesus talk about, I'm leaving. I'm not going to orphanizo my you. Do you know another Greek word, orphan? I, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Uh, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to die and rise again. He tells them these things clearly and they don't get it. And he tells them more clearly, clearly and then they get sad. You and I would be sad if we were in their shoes. And Jesus tells them some really remarkable things. I want you to notice a connection between soft-heartedness and an experience of Christ. I think there's a, a tendency in Christianity today to go after an experience with God for the experience rather than to have God. Right? We, we have become trained, I think, by some well-meaning ideas in evangelicalism to go after things like delight and pleasure and experience. But sometimes those things become a pursuit of delight and a pursuit of experience and a pursuit of pleasure rather than a delight in God and experience of God. And, and the pleasure in God. And, and, and we tend to mistake our emotional... Um, I lost the word. We, we tend to mistake the experience for the pursuit of God himself. And so what we crave oftentimes is, man, I, I just want to get another experience. I remember what it was like when I felt this way. And I want to get that feeling again. And we've replaced the feelings and uh, the emotional attachment to an experience with the actual pursuit of God. And what's interesting is uh, a lot of times we use experiences and delighting and, and some charged emotional worship setting to replace obedience. Where um, if I can just have an experience with God, that can salve my conscience And I can feel like I'm tracking with him again. But I want you to notice what Jesus says about these things. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Do you see what Jesus equates here? Love for him and obedience. And then he says in the next phrase, and the one who loves me. And remember what Jesus just described as love for him. Obedience to his commands. The one who loves me 
will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. Listen, you want an experience with Jesus. You want to love him and be loved by his father and experience love from him and have greater and increasing disclosure of Christ to you experientially, relationally. Pursue obedience out of love for him. There's no replacement for that. What does hard heartedness do? You know, not keeping short accounts with sin. You're actually bringing into the experience with Christ that you want to have, into your relationship with Christ, things that Christ hates. Things that Jesus suffered for on the cross, wore around him before his father and endured. He became sin on our behalf. And we're taking those things which some would suffer for in eternity in hell, and Jesus suffered for in infinite measure at the cross. We're taking those things that dishonor him, that displease him, and we're holding on to them. I don't want to let them go. I like the sin, and I want my experience with Jesus. And he says, that's not how this works. James calls that mentality adultery, right? He says, you adulteresses, you love the world, and, and you're trying to hold on to God too. Hardness of heart interferes with an experience of the love of God and the personal relational disclosure of Jesus to you, believer. Hardness of heart interferes with that. You can't go fix that problem by going to a conference and getting hyped up. You can't fix that problem by looking for delight or experience apart from what Jesus here prescribes. Now listen, if you think that obedience to Jesus means just pulling up your own bootstraps and meriting God's favor by performing some external deed, you've missed the point of what it means to love Him and obey Him. These things aren't to be separated. Uh, Obedience springs from love from Him. It, It makes sense. Jesus, I love you. And I don't want to have anything to do with what you're asking me to do with my life right now. That's ridiculous. Jesus, I love you. Whatever you would say to me, however you would want to direct my life, I want to do that because I love you. That's not hypocrisy. That's not legalism. It gets called legalism. Be careful with that. That's love. And that's an experience of God in relationship to him. There's a fifth danger of hard-heartedness. I would call it faltering assurance. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Faltering assurance. And I want you to understand some theological categories so we can be clear here in this moment. I want to differentiate between eternal security and assurance of salvation. Eternal security is outside of you It's objective. It's rooted in the eternal plan of God from before the foundation of the world. Everyone whom God uh, foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And everyone whom he predestined, he also called, that is, brought you to Christ, justified, that is, declared you righteous before him, and glorified. A future reality that's used with a past tense verb to describe the Fort Knox security surrounding the believer. 
You can't undo what God has done. There's an unbreakable chain of salvation that began in eternity past, terminates in eternity future, and there is no way that anybody that is genuinely saved ever gets unsaved. That's eternal security. Assurance of salvation is slightly different than that. Assurance of salvation is subjective. It's inside of you. It's emotional. And in one sense, it's um, how you feel about eternal security. How you feel about your eternal security. They're not the same thing. A, A genuine Christian's eternal security never changes. My assurance of salvation changes all the time. And it's actually connected to my hard-heartedness or soft-heartedness. A hard-hearted, disobedient Christian who is not keeping short accounts with God, who is not dealing with sin, has no right to assurance of salvation. Examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, Paul says. You should not be banking on a card you signed at an invitation at a church service. You should not be banking at a profession of faith you made when you were a kid or some emotional experience you had at summer camp. You should not be banking on something in the past for your assurance of salvation. What do you look to? Your present relationship with Christ. Your obedience. Your pursuit of Him. Your vital connection to the vine. You can't have assurance of salvation while you're holding on to some darling sin you just don't want to let go of that Jesus hates. You might be eternally secure, but you have no right to bank on it. And I want you to see the experience of this in Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 12. Brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, and by flesh there, Uh, Paul means your residual depravity. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. Stop right there. Have you ever wondered about what the leading of the spirit is? Is it some sort of divining rod I I put out there to decide which shirt to wear, what college to go to, whom to marry, what job to take? No, this is the only place the Bible speaks about the leading of the Holy Spirit, and this passage defines it for us. Uh, Notice in verse uh, 13. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And notice the first word in verse 14, for... All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The connection between verse 14 and verse 13 is very clear here. What is the leading of the Spirit? It is the Spirit leading the genuine believer to put to death the deeds of the body. And this provides great assurance for us. Boy, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in me and is leading me to put to death the deeds of the body, then I have the assurance that's described in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. What was the slavery we were under outside of Christ that Paul just talked about in Romans 6? A slavery to sin. One of the evidences that you are in Christ is the Holy Spirit in you leading you to put to death the deeds of the body. That proves you're not a slave of sin. Uh, That slavery leading to fear, that's not who you are. But you have received a spirit of adoption as daughters, adoption as sons, by which we cry out, 
Abba, Father, that word for Abba there is a tender form. It's like Daddy or Papa. In other words, the believer can be assured of a filial relationship to God. Not God as a distant creator, but God as a loving Daddy, Papa, Father. A relationship won by adoption, purchased by the blood of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we enter into, we now know Him and love Him and are known by Him and loved by Him as a father-daughter, father-son relationship. What, what great assurance. And it is the Spirit Himself, in verse 16, that testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In other words, there is an inward testimony of the Holy Spirit inside the believer. My spirit resonating with the Spirit of God that I'm a child of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in me. The Spirit of adoption is in me and He's leading me to put to death the deeds of the body. It's one of the ways I know I'm no longer a slave of sin. He's in me and He's doing these things. I'm His. And if you are not putting to death the deeds of the body, if you're not following the Spirit's leading and putting to death the deeds of the body, you rob yourself of assurance. Whether or not you're a believer, um, you know, th- that, that's in God's Fort Knox eternal security vault. But your assurance of salvation is grounded in the Spirit's work in your life of putting to death the deeds of the body, keeping a soft heart, keeping short accounts on sin. There's another danger of hard-heartedness, and it is a vicious cycle that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows... This he shall also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You know what happens when you throw down seeds. Hopefully, uh, something grows. And if you throw down watermelon seeds, you shouldn't expect something else. The, the, the plant that grows out of the seed is what should grow out of the seed you put in the ground. If, if I put weed seeds in my lawn, what should I expect to grow? Dandelions and crabgrass and all the stuff I don't want there. I, I shouldn't have any hope that if I spend my time sowing seeds of corruption, that out of the ground is going to come life happiness, blessing, joy, obedience. And there's a waiting principle involved here too. It's not immediate. I can't think, oh, you know what? I've been sowing seeds to the flesh. What I need to do is start sowing seeds to the spirit. So I'm going to read my Bible this morning. I'm going to be around Christians who love Christ, who hate sin, who long for heaven. I'm going to fill my life with godly fellowship. I'm going to serve others. I'm going to do that for 30 minutes this morning. And this afternoon, I'm, there's still junk growing up in my yard. Where did that come from? Well, you've been sowing seeds for three months. This isn't a quick fix, which is why Paul says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap. Do you see that? So 
a hardened heart sowing seeds to the flesh means that for some time to come, you're going to be reaping what you've sown. God isn't mocked. Don't be confused. Don't be deceived. Tom Blevins said it this way. Don't. um, Oh, I lost the quote. I think I wrote it down. You can't be sowing in Satan's greenhouse and praying for crop failure. Tom Blevins. It's good. You can't think that, well, if I if I sow to the flesh and then I pray, God, please don't don't let all the consequences of my sin manifest themselves. God could be gracious. God takes away a lot of what we deserve. Um, But we have to be very careful what we're sowing. There is a vicious cycle of hard heartedness. Hard heartedness produces more hard heartedness. And then the final danger, and this is the real danger of hard heartedness, apostasy. Apostasy. Apostasy is the final, ultimate, falling away from Christ of someone who professed faith in Christ. Apostasy is the final, ultimate, and we would say eternal, falling away from Christ of someone who professed faith in Christ. And if you're wondering, well, how does that work with eternal security? You have to understand the Bible proclaims both eternal security and apostasy. And there are examples in your Bible of apostasy with names Real people. There are warnings in your Bible against falling away. I've given you a list of them in your notes. I just invite you to read those, meditate on those. Um, We could have just said the book of Hebrews. That's what that is. I want you to think about 1 John 2.19. There, the Apostle John is writing to believers about apostates, and he says this, they went out from us because they were never of us. They went out from, they went out, they would have stayed with us if they were of us, but to demonstrate that they were never of us, they went out from us. Kind of a tongue twister. But the reality is this, not everybody that affiliates with the church, not everybody that calls themselves a Christian, not everybody that has uh, Christian music and a Christian dog and a Christian tattoo, actually loves Christ. And you can be self-deceived about this. And eventually, sometimes in this life, but sometimes they're not discovered till the next life. You know, some show up at the the gates and and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew. Yeah, but I did this and this and this in your name. I lived the Christian life. I was in Christian culture. I was born in the Bible Belt. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Some find out in the next life. Some walk away in this life. And they walk away to demonstrate that they were never of us. Listen, that's a, that, that's a, that explanation is comforting. If John had not given us that explanation, we might wonder, oh, is every genuine believer vulnerable to walking away? Listen, I would have if I could have already. And God is kind. But the warnings are here. And, and the warning is one of trajectories. Um, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, Take care of your own heart so that you do not drift. So that you do not drift. If you studied math or physics or you remember what a trajectory is, it's a dot with a line and an arrow at the end. 
And, and the point is you, you're going in a direction and in a straight line it keeps going in that direction. At 60 miles, one degree off is a mile off. You could be a mile off as you get down the road. Now, if you, if you think about driving down the freeway, how long does it take you to go 60 miles? About an hour. About an hour of just listening to music, driving, going along. Um, and then, whoa, where I'm supposed to be going is, is a mile that way. How, how did I miss that? I mean, back there, yeah, sure, I was off a little bit. But, I mean, I was only off that far. Right? That's a trajectory. You're off that far. Then correct that much. Correct that much. Get back on track. The, the drifting is a trajectory towards eternal destruction, Christian. That's the message of the warning passages in the Bible. It ends at destruction. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, uh, makes the end of apostasy clear. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of a judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And he goes on down in verse 30. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You spurn Christ, you walk away from Christ, and, and, and it doesn't happen in one moment. It happens by degrees. It's a drift Hebrews 2.1, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Let's talk about some of the causes of hard-heartedness. The first cause I list for you is just see above. The things we've talked about, the, the, the dangers of hard-heartedness, many of those are also the causes of hard-heartedness. That's that Galatians 6 principle. There's a vicious cycle involved. Number two on your list is simply neglect. Neglect. You neglect to shepherd your heart and your heart will go where it wants to go. And the residual depravity, the homardiological hangovers that you have in the inner man will take you away. In high school and college, I drove a 1967 Mustang. It was my grandfather's. He bought brand new. Uh, we never quite got the steering right on that thing. It was two hands on the wheel all the time because it had a left hand pull. Left hand pull is dangerous. Um, maybe not in South Africa. But in America, when we drive on the right side of the road, the correct side of the road, a left-hand pull is into oncoming traffic. You realize, my life depended on me two hands on the wheel in that Mustang all the time. Your heart's like that. You neglect, and the natural tendency will take over. We see that in 2 Peter 1. Listen to these Great foundational God-begun promises, verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us according to His own glory and excellence. For by these things, He has granted to us His precious promises so that by them, by these precious and magnificent promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is great news. God has begun a process in you, inside the inner person, uh, that he calls the divine nature in you. 
God has put something of himself inside the believer, um, which now uh, causes you to have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What a great foundational promise, rock solid truth, bank on it. And do this with it, verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And in knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one lacking is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Well, I know I'm called, I know I'm chosen, because I had this experience a long time ago. No, the, the way you make certain of these things is by actually increasing in all of the qualities that Peter just described. They spring out of the promises of God. Uh, they spring out of the gospel of God. They spring out of the inviolable things that God has done in the heart of every single believer. But how do you know if you're a believer? Diligence in the application of the virtues Peter describes. They come from him, but they involve you in the diligent application of them. You neglect these things and you produce a hardness of heart. There's another cause for hardness of heart, and it is false teaching. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2. And the book of 2 Peter, in great measure, is devoted to the exposure of false teachers. Uh, they need to be exposed, to be seen for what they are. Uh, listen, you're not an effective false teacher if you just come and say, Hey, everybody worship Satan, follow me. Right? An effective false teacher parades as an angel of light, uh, wraps himself in lots of truthisms, and is appealing to Christians. A false teacher would gain no ground in the church if Christians didn't listen. Right? But Christians listen because there's an attractiveness for one reason or another. Here's how Peter describes them. These are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Do you understand? These are professing Christians, teachers even in the church, who are destined for eternal hell. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Do you hear that? Uh, someone in the church teaching you the things that appeal to your flesh. God wants you to be happy. Or whatever. whatever. Uh, yeah, my flesh wants what this guy's bringing. Uh, that comes under the rubric of false teaching. Promising them freedom, verse 19, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would be better for them not ever to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment happened to them. Staggering. Another description of apostasy. In this case, the, the, the apostate nature of false teachers who turn away from Christ and are still teaching in the church. They're still slaves of their sin and they're convincing you to follow them for whatever reasons they want to do that. And genuine believers might barely escape or they may be drawn down to follow, falling away from Christ with the false teachers. 
A genuine believer never will. A professing believer will be revealed by it. Weak teaching also contributes to hard hearts. Uh, One of my mentors said it this way, soft preaching produces hard hearts. Hard preaching produces soft hearts. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul warns Timothy in chapter 1, there's some guys teaching things that are wrong. You need to silence them, turn away from them, teach them not to teach those things. And here's the goal of our teaching, Timothy, verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love. It is love. Love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see that? When when someone is teaching in order to build an empire or make a name for himself or any of those kinds of things, um, run away from that. Someone's getting away from Scripture and getting into all kinds of other confusing things. Run away from that. Here's the goal, Timothy. Love. And that love comes from a pure heart, not a hardened heart, um, but love from a pure heart and a good conscience. That is short accounts with sin and a sincere faith, not a hypocritical faith, not a, not a faith with cracks in it, but through and through um, a sincere faith. That's the goal. Um, weak teaching doesn't produce those things. Biblical teaching does. Number five, an out-and-out rejection of the truth. In Acts 19.9, I just give you the reference there. Um, Paul at Ephesus was preaching to the, to the Jews, and they were listening to the word of God for a while, and then they stopped listening, and the text says their hearts were hardened to the truth. Listen, anytime you and I hear the word of God and knowingly reject the word of God, we are producing in ourselves a sclerosis of the heart. Don't do that. That's dangerous territory. That is the pathway and the trajectory towards apostasy. And it ends in destruction. Get off that path. Don't reject what you know. Number six, isolation from the local church is a cause of hard-heartedness. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. Isolation, isolation from the church. You know uh, Hebrews 10.25, that's the you got to go to church verse in your Bible. Right? <laughs> And, and it begins in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of, confession of our hope. Um, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, my Bible has a paragraph break and a heading in between verses 25 and 26. Cross it out. It doesn't belong there. Notice the first word of verse 26 is a four connecting verse 26 to 25. Don't isolate yourself from the local church for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. That's the apostasy verse we read earlier. There's a connection between your vital connection to the local church and your drifting away unto apostasy. What is the path to apostasy? Um, Stop assembling together. Now, let's make a caveat. Amelia is going to move to the other side of the world where there is no church. You're violating Hebrews 10, 25. Uh, no, they're, they're, they're going there to see, to see the church planted, birthed, and grown. And they have to work hard to maintain a vital relationship to their churches, to, to oversight, to fellowship. And honestly, they're going to work hard at it. We need to work hard at that. It's, it's hard to live in Papua New Guinea. 
communication is difficult. Um, we have to work hard on our end to keep them connected. When you find yourself drifting from the church, you have to recognize that you are inducing hard-heartedness. Absence does not make the heart grow fonder. And then number seven is disobedience. Disobedience of any kind. Any unchecked sin hardens the heart. So, confess it. Turn from it. Enjoy the fruits and the benefits of repentance and forgiveness with Christ. Let me give you some of the remedies for hard-heartedness. In three categories. Individual remedies, corporate remedies, and divine remedies. The individual remedies are... Bible intake and prayer. You've got to read your Bible. You need to be hearing from God in His Word. Uh, whether it's sermons, uh, reading your Bible, meditating on Scripture, uh, you know, a 3 by 5 card on, on your windshield in your car, uh, something you read in the morning, uh, memorization. What does Psalm 1 say? How blessed is the man. Happy. You want to be happy. That's what blessed means. How blessed is the man. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in God's word. And on his, on his word, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a, a tree flourishing by streams of water. You want to be that tree? Root yourself in God's word regularly. You've got to hear from God. You've got to reorient your heart. You've got to inform your mind. And then in prayer is where we speak to God. In God's word is where he speaks to us. In prayer is when we speak to him. And what are some of the things we do? I, I love this definition of prayer. Help. It's an expression of our dependence on God. It's an opportunity for us to confess. And listen, if you find a wayward emotion in you, <clears throat> confess it to God. It, it's not enough just to confess the outward behavior. God, I did this again. Um. Confess, God, I, I wanted to do that again. And before I did it, there was a seed of, of desire that, that grew into the activity. God, I, I, I feel something that's not true about you. I'm having hard thoughts about you. I, I don't like what you're doing in the world. And just confess that. There is such liberating freedom in calling a wayward emotion sin. There's a big movement today to, to say anxiety is not sin. It's sin. Listen, if I don't call it sin, then I'm a slave to something I can't do anything about. You're a victim. That's hopeless. But if it's sin, I can go to God with joy, embrace the fact that God knows me better than I know myself, sent his son to pay for that, reconcile me to himself, and begin working on it in me by the Holy Spirit towards freedom and joy. I, I, I trap myself as a victim if I'm unwilling to confess. I don't want to call it sin. That's harsh. No, that's hope. That's hope. Confess those things. God, I don't feel like reading your word this morning. Well, confess that. God, I don't feel like reading your word this morning. Help. God loves to answer those prayers. Let me give you the corporate remedies. Assembling together. We've talked about that one. Being shepherded. Hebrews 13, 17 is the verse that haunts your pastors. Submit to your leaders as those who give account for your souls. It may sound like a self serving thing for a pastor to uh, mention Hebrews 13, 17. Submit to your leaders so I can get what I want. No, submit to your leaders. They, they give account for your souls before God. And, but then he goes on and says, this is a blessing for you. 
Um, do you have a category for being shepherded? For a small group leader or a wellspring leader or a friend or a pastor to be in your life and ask you hard questions? Hey, here's what I notice. Can I ask you about that? Being shepherded is critical for softening hearts. Number three, restoration. Just read Galatians 6, 1 to 3. If, any, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him. Restore him. Caught in a trespass does not mean, aha, I caught you sinning. It means, no, your, your sister in Christ is caught in a sin, in the steel bear trap of the entanglements of sin, and she's hurt. Compound fracture and blood everywhere. Go help her. Pry the steel trap doors open and help bear one another's burdens. That's Galatians 6, 1 to 3. Um, the outworking of that in a corporate setting is church discipline, Matthew 18. It's why we do it. We love each other. We recognize the dangers of hard-heartedness and apostasy. This is Jesus' rescue plan for the church collectively. And then there are divine remedies. All of the above, everything we've talked about are God's remedies. They're his means. You reading your Bible is God's means of softening your heart. Church discipline is God's means of softening a believer's heart. And then fatherly discipline, Hebrews 12. This is actually a ground of assurance. If God in your life is bringing hardship to loosen your white knuckle grip on this world, or to shave off your rough edges, or to bring conviction about sin, if God is using trials in your life to accomplish those things, you know you're a daughter. Hebrews 12. And then the warning passages, I give you the list here. Those are God's means of keeping us with him. And then death, the removal of a believer of a believer from this present life, uh, could be God's gracious means of preser preservation. If I'm on a trajectory that's going to take me off the cliff to apostasy, I know I'm capable of it. I can do that. Um, might God take me home before I got there? Now, I don't think we could know if that's what happened in any individual case. I don't think there's any benefit to trying to sort that out. But I want us to understand a category for that. And you can read 1 Corinthians 11, 29 and 30. Paul is addressing the Corinthian believers. They're abusing and misusing the Lord's table. They are not examining themselves. And they are drinking judgment against themselves. And Paul says, this is the reason that many of you are sick, physically sick. And some have slept. Not taking a nap. <laughs> That's a euphemism in the Bible for describing a believer's homegoing. God has taken some home because they wouldn't repent of something that dishonored him, dishonored the church, smeared the gospel witness of the collective body of Christ. I think I was given the assignment of addressing the wellspring disciplines in this message. I think we just talked about discipline one. I think we just talked about discipline three. Two is probably in there somewhere, and I'm out of time. I have five minutes? Okay. Thank you, Jamie. Um, when you think about what it means to shepherd your own heart, find something to confess. If something's not right, 
something just seems a little off, just take some time. Think about your own condition. Are there things in my heart that aren't pleasing to the Lord? Are there things that I'm thinking that need to be corrected by God's word? Are there things that I'm feeling that are not brought under the dominion of what I should be thinking? And just confess those things to the Lord and ask for help. Open his word and seek him. When you're doing that well, when your heart is soft in those ways, what happens in discipline too? What happens in the close relationships under your roof? And, and as you expand out from that in concentric circles into the church and even beyond the walls of the church in the lives of unbelievers that you know, these things have profound effects. Because what are you going to be eager to talk about? How, how are you going to be compassionate for the people around you if you're doing these things well? The, the opposite of that, a hard heart, has the opposite effect on the relationships around you. you. You probably know this in your home. I feel the effects, the effects of my hard-heartedness on the people I live with. I can feel that. And it's almost like, oh, things aren't right under this roof. I need to spend some time with the Lord. It's me. I, I know that I want to be an evangelist. I want to share the gospel with people. You know what happens without me thinking about it? When my heart has been under the faucet of God's word and I've been devoted to him in prayer, I just can't wait to tell people about my favorite things. And, and sometimes an evangelistic encounter, when I wasn't expecting it, revives my cold heart. Because all of a sudden, oh man, this guy is, I'm sitting on a plane and this guy wants to talk about spiritual things. He saw my Bible in my bag and he's asking me questions. I just wanted to relax. <laughs> and then 30 seconds later, we're talking about Christ. And it's like, whenever he's done talking, I can't wait to spend time with Christ again. And you have to understand, God is kind. Oh, I'm glad we had this conclusion. We can't leave this conclusion off. God is so kind. Turn to Jude. I want you to see Jude. We're going to read the entirety of Jude chapter 20. <laughs> That's a long one. It's a long one. You, beloved, notice who he's talking to. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Here's the command, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Keep shepherding your hearts. Look how Jude ends, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you, same verb, keep yourselves to the one who's able to keep you. To keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time now and forevermore. Let's pray. God we thank you that you are the one who keeps your children. You don't let any of them go.
You said that none could snatch them out of your hand. You are the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before you with joy. And yet, one of the means you have given for your keeping us is our persevering, enduring, and keeping ourselves in the faith. God, we recognize that our obedience, your discipline, church discipline, fellowship, even trials, all of these things are designed by you to keep our hearts soft before you. And that's what we want. We pray, O oh God, that you would use your word, even this morning, to convict where we need conviction, to encourage where we need encouragement. And may you use us in each other's lives to those ends too. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.